serving as president of this fine institution, and we have a special guest with us today. Um, Curtis Hill is uh, a known speaker, motivator, uh, and generally somebody who enjoys chatting with people about this idea of belonging, and what a pleasure to have you on campus today, Curtis. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Mr. President. (laughs) I love it. Um, You've spent some time with our students today, but uh, we also get an opportunity in this podcast to speak to a broader audience. And so we're going to try and maybe revisit a few of those themes, but also both get better acquainted with you and maybe some of your passions around uh, this topic. And frankly, your story, um, I think, is one that it's, it's powerful and in its telling, maybe offers hope and insight and, and counsel to others. So let's start there. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Um, where, where was life for you as a child? Uh, life for me as a child and still as an adult is south side of Chicago. Got it. Born and raised on the south side. I still call it home and I still love it to this day. Yeah. A lot like Grand Junction, right? Yeah. Similar. <laughs> <laughs> on steroids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we uh, pretty different environment. Um, and for those who maybe haven't been, don't know Chicago Orientus, why is the South Side uh, unique and what are the unique attributes about that part of Chicago? So the South Side for me is unique because South Side is where I learned community from. The South Side is unique because Chicago like other parts of the country, but when you really take a deep look into Chicago, it has a racial divide. Mm -hmm. And so growing up in the 70s when I did in Chicago, most African-American families navigated to the South Side and the West Side. And for me, the comfort of the South Side, knowing the ins and outs, is what makes it so special for Mm -hmm. me. And then when I grew up and became an educator, I had opportunities to move outside of the city, but I just moved to a different area in the South Side where most educators, police officers, city workers, firefighters live. Okay. But I still wanted to call the South Side home. Yeah, that was that was uh, your home neighborhood and where you come from. I've... I'm not sure everybody maybe is tracking this, though some of our listeners certainly were, but it it is clear from the evidence that, that south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago, probably is exhibit A of some of the redlining and some of the practices that led to a really, really divided and, and gentrified, racially divided um, big cities, is it not? It's the truth. Yeah. And and what did what were the impacts of that for you as a child? What was what was life like? Uh, on the South Side in the 70s? Wow, that's a very, very fascinating question because when we think about the dynamic of the divide, and in our case, it was racial in Chicago, but it was also economical. Yeah. So yeah. there were black families in certain parts of the South Side that were doing very, very well, and then other African American families on the South Side that wasn't doing as well. And so for me growing up, I was on the side that wasn't doing very well. We weren't doing very well because my parents made a conscious decision. And that decision was 
my father would go to work and be the breadwinner uh-huh. while my mom stayed at home to instill in us the values that they wanted us to have because we were under the impression that although we don't have a lot of money, we could be and can be a high value family. Mm -hmm. And so on my block, for instance, there may have been 50 families growing up in the seventies, but there may have been 10 families in what we call a traditional household, mom, dad, there. And so by us being on the poor side of things, I can remember being in first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, and I can open a textbook and it would have the names of my older uncles and cousins in there. And I'm talking about maybe people who were 10 to 15 years older than me. Yeah, same textbook. Um, And so we were not given the same access Mm -hmm. as the other people were given inside of the same school system that they were in. And so truth be told, my education was built on my zip code. Mm -hmm. The people in a better zip code received a better education. The people in my zip code, we got what was known as the leftovers. And so when the people in the better uh, zip codes got finished with their books and stuff instead of those became our new books Mm. as opposed to ordering us books when they ordered their books we got their books to um, recycle and use those were the times we had books as an educator i taught in these same zip codes Mm. and these children didn't even have books what were the consequences of that experience? I mean, as you as you got older and we all, right? I mean, middle school is is rough for everybody, but, all right, you're going through all these changes and, and kids are going through this really critical developmental stages. But but in that, that sense of, of severe under access to opportunity, um, what were the consequences as you grew older in those schools? So the consequences, they look different from person to person. But here's what I can tell you. In the 70s, when I grew up or when I started teaching in the 2000s, early 2000s, what happens when you're in low income areas or areas that didn't have as much access as other areas, we find that students have a hard time finding someone within their center of influence Mm. where education has paid off for them. Yeah. And so going to college is really not something that we would see because we've never seen anyone yeah. in our neighborhood go to college, come back and become successful. So my dad, he graduated from high school, but he lived in a small farm town called Osceola, Arkansas. Hmm. My dad true story is a real life cotton picker. And so when school started in August for all of the other students, my dad couldn't go to school until cotton picking season was over, which is October, November. And then he was able to go to school, but then he had to leave school early in March because guess what? It's now cotton picking season all over again. So whatever education he got, 
he got between those few months that he was in school. So my mom doesn't have a college degree. She went to school in Chicago. She grew up in the 60s in a racially divided city. And so she doesn't have a college degree because she didn't see anyone with a college degree. Mm -hmm. And I'm just one story of a larger problem that's happening in inner city schools when people of low income are not seeing the benefit of education because we can't reach out and touch people where education has really impacted their lives, who can come back and tell the story of this is who I was and this is what education has done for me. Yeah, walking, talking example of of what that could mean. So let me ask you, what what was your dad's occupation? What did he do? My dad worked at a company called Corn Products. Okay. So Corn Products is a, for lack of a better word, they're like a food company, I guess. They make Skippy peanut butter, Mazzola cooking oil, K-Rose syrup, things like that. Got it. Got it. So he did he work in a manufacturing plant or yes, he worked in a manufacturing plant. Got it. He worked there all my life, and his claim to fame is one: he's never late, and then (laughs) two: I think he worked over thirty years and never took a day off work because working was instilled in him from working in the cotton fields. And you're feeling sick. You're feeling family tragedy. You're feeling things are not going right could not interfere with the work that had to be done. Mm. Um, I want to come back to that in a minute, but um, because those those examples you got, maybe while they weren't college, they were maybe equally powerful in other ways. Um, keep going chronologically. So you're you're coming up through through school, and um, where does what does life look like for you as a teenager? Wow, going through school. So let me go chronologically. My elementary years were years of you're not that smart. Mm. You're smart enough to get by, but you're not smart enough to make a difference. Then when I got in high school, which was still a time where Many of the teachers didn't look like me. Mm-hmm. One, they were majority Carca- Caucasian women. And then uh, two, they came into the city to teach, but then they left the city to go home. Yeah. And so that working environment, I heard from my counselor that college wasn't in my future. I should do something that required me to use my hands. And it sounded like a good idea and like this person had the best interest in mind for me. However, in Chicago in the 80s, not only was the school system driven by race, so were the trades. Mm. And what is a very, very known fact is we're going to redline them into a trade that's not going to accept them in the first place. So now let's take college off their radar and let's send them in a place that won't welcome them. And so I went to college. and I mean, sorry, I went, I'm in high school without any real direction. Now, remember, my parents didn't go to college. Yeah. So I still don't have a direction of what college is. And I'll never forget, I was in a store called Wilby's, the neighborhood store on the corner of my school. And a young lady came up to me. She said, hey, Curtis, are you going to college? I'm like, College? 
I said, I don't know anything about college. I'm a senior in high school. She said, well, you can get financial aid. And I had never heard the term financial aid. Hmm. I'm thinking, we're too proud to get on public assistance because when you hear aid, you think general assistance is what it was called back in the day. And I'm like, my mom and dad is way too proud for me to be getting some type of general assistance. And it never dawned on me what financial aid was. And so I graduated high school and the only alternative I had at the time was I enrolled or enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserves. And when I enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserves, I began to uh, see things just a little bit differently, but not different enough to make me go to college. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so it, your life at some point took some twists and turns, right? I mean, I, I understand that you found yourself in uh, a place that probably was outside, which I'm guessing what your parents were hoping for and yes. what you had anticipated. Yes. But tell us about that. How did what happened and how'd you get there? OK, so I need to take a step back. Because a lot of times we share with people about being in a racially divided city, a racially divided country, and we only highlight the things that people of other races or things say to you. And sometimes it pours gasoline on the fire. Yeah. But my division teacher in high school was an African-American woman. Hmm. And she told me the only two things that were in my future was the graveyard or the prison system. Right. So it doesn't really matter whose mouth or what face those words come out of. Hmm. They don't hurt any less. Yeah. But what we do is we tease out or pull out when it's said from people who don't look or act like we do. Hmm. And so when I graduated from high school, I did go into the U.S. Army Reserves. But guess what? I went back into the community after I did my basic training and my AIT. I went back to the same community where college was not being successful to people who look like me. Hmm. We didn't really understand or have that access to college. So what I did have was some money hmm. because I saved all my money from basic training. Yeah, And I was able to look out and see what people in my neighborhood was doing. My dad was at work. My mom is in the house trying to do what's best. And I'm 18 years old. My superhero was not my father because my father went to work 40 hours a week, sometimes 80 hours a week, got paid on Thursday and didn't have any money on Friday. Hmm. That's not a hero. My hero was the person who had a car and everyone in the neighborhood knew his name. Hmm. It was a guy by the name of Chuckaluck. Um, And he was the neighborhood uh, drug dealer. And we didn't aspire to be like my dad. Hmm. We aspired to be like him because He was the person who had the money, the fame, and the power. And so for hundreds of black boys on the south side of Chicago who had a father like me, who couldn't necessarily make all of the ends meet, who was robbing Peter to pay Paul, and then for the other segment of the black society where you don't have a father, Chuckaluck created an environment, I hate to say it, where we felt like we belonged. Yeah. And so in this environment, although it was created out of negativity, we felt like we belonged there. Yeah. And everyone, no matter what path or what walk of life you come from, 
there's something I believe in every human that wants to be successful. But your picture of success is based on your environment, mm-hmm. right? So if I grew up on a farm, maybe my picture of success would be owning a couple acres of land and having I was going to say camel, but they don't have camels on farm. But heaven as sheep so, yeah, and some livestock goat and, and cow yeah. out there, that might be my vision of success. Well, yeah. my vision of success was to make as much money as Chuck made in mm. the drug game. And so I partnered with my two brothers, uh, Mike and June, and we sold a lot of drugs. We sold enough drugs to put us on the radar. We sold enough drugs to make other people envious and jealous of what we had. And one night it turned tragic when the people who was jealous of us then came and murdered my best friend on my front porch. I can't imagine the power of that moment and, and everything leading up to it. But the, your point about the role model question, it does seem to me is lost periodically in, in um, the, sort of the underbelly of, of what happens in our cities, uh, it, well, in our rural areas just as well. But that moment for you had to be just shockwaves, right? How, what came of that, what that night? So if I could take you back in that moment, now just imagine sitting there and you're hearing gunfire as if you were in the Persian Gulf during wartime. That's how many rounds it sound like was going off. And to know that their number one objective is to kill you. Mm-hmm. Now, although I didn't die, I'm I'm standing in that moment right then there. I'm inside of my house because when the bullets rang out, everyone runs for cover or safety to the nearest place that they can find it. So I go in the house and my first instinct is where's June, which is my older brother. Mike wasn't there at the time, wasn't worried about Mike because he wasn't there. Where is June? And I couldn't rest. My anxiety level is through the roof. I'm nervous. I'm nauseous. Then June says, man, I'm all right. You good? And I'm good. Now I can start thinking about and trying to process what happened and where are our guys at, our friends, our buddies who were out there with us. And it it appeared to be in that moment an eternity mm-hmm. between the bullets ringing out and the police arriving. When the police arrived, man, it's nighttime, maybe midnight, and the street was lit up with red and blue lights from the ambulance and also the the, the police cars that are out there. When we come out of the house, the police begin to question us not like victims, but like suspects is how we internalized it. Hmm. Didn't mean that that's really what was taking place. They have a job to do. And the questions that were coming to us was not as important as where's Dwight? Where's our friend Pork? Hmm. Where's Frankie man? 
those questions were more important than what did they have on, which direction did they come from. Mm. But the police have a job to do because they're trying to solve a case. But the case in my mind is about my friends. And so we're there and I have choices in that moment. I, I, we step back, we remove ourselves from the neighborhood for a few days. And it's about a week later, we're all preparing for Dwight's funeral. And I had choices. Since we were doing very, very well in illegal activity, we knew that if we didn't respond, that it would be seen as a moment of weakness. Mm. And so we decided that we were going to delay our response until after Dwight's funeral. Within those seven days, something monumental starts to take place in my mind. Thought number one is, man, I'm going to commit suicide because this is too much for a human to bear. Mm -hmm. The places that I once ruled at, they're now looking at me out the corner of their eyes, like, what's really going on? And then I start to think, okay, we're going to retaliate. What do we need in order to retaliate? And so we started ordering our things to retaliate. But this is when something in my mind shifted my thinking. My girlfriend at the time, this was 1992, was pregnant, expecting my, our first child. And I said this to myself, if I retaliate, there are only one or two outcomes. Outcome number one is we go, we kill them, I get arrested and thrown in prison, and now my daughter has to be raised without a father. I don't know what that feels like. Although we were poor, I was raised with my dad. And I don't want a kid to have to experience not being raised by a father. Yeah. Or outcome number two, while we are retaliating, I get killed in the process. And now I'm no longer here, which still leaves my daughter to be raised without a father. So when I weighed up my outcomes within those seven days, and I'm... and. A week can change your life. When I looked at my outcome within those seven days, it allowed me to frame a situation where I was more concerned about someone else than mm -hmm. I was myself. So after Dwight's funeral, everyone knew that this was our time to retaliate. When they came to me and they said, okay, let's go. What are you going to do? I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave. I'm going to step away from the drugs and the gang. And it's time for me to let the streets be in the streets and have a better future. Hmm. Seven days. So I don't know if, if I could tell any of your listeners or if I could tell anyone, it doesn't matter if you're from a big city or a rural area. When things catastrophic happens in your life, happen in your life, if you can take a step back, hmm. seven days. It was enough. I lived through all my worst days. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the amazing thing. Everyone here and everyone listening, 
We've had some days we thought was the worst day of our lives. Guess what? We lived through 100% of our worst days. Mm -hmm. So if we can step back and give ourselves time, things can shift and we'll be able to see a different outcome. It's such a powerful lesson, the ability to, to not react out of emotion in the moment versus sitting back and letting a little bit of circumspection drive a different choice. And, and so I'm, I'm interested from that point, um, you say you're going to leave. I'm guessing, you know, at that point, I mean, did college become an option all of a sudden? Did some other, I mean, yeah, I'm thinking where you're saying, okay, I made the first hard choice. Now what? Okay. And so I'm at a crossroad in my life because from my teen years to my adulthood, the place where I belonged is no longer an option for me. I belonged with these people. I belonged in this gang. I belonged right there. And now it's no longer an option for me. When I left the gangs and drugs, I still had money. I still had drugs in the street. But when I made my decision, I knew that if I took this money or the drugs that was in the street, it would pull me back into a lifestyle of crime. Mm. So I gave the money away. And whoever owed me or had drugs of mine, we're clean. But now I'm broke. (laughs) (laughs) I went from going into a store and not asking how much things cost to now going back and getting on public aid, Hmm. general assistance, and standing in the food stamp line. But it was worth it because now I no longer had to look over my shoulder. Now I can have some peaceful night's sleep. So while I'm doing that, I was able to get a job. I'll never forget, I was a library page. I made $5.68 an hour, 20 hours a week, I was bringing home $200 on the 10th and 25th of every month. I thought I was rich. I really did. I know I had a whole lot of money. We were making $100,000, $250,000 a week sometimes. But that 200 I made uh, on the 10th and 25th meant way more than what we were making back then. Wow. And so from there, I kept climbing the ladder. ladder. I got another job, and I started bringing home $500 every Uh, 10th and 25th because I was a city employee and I married the girl who was pregnant at the time and so now we have one baby and then one baby turns into two babies and then two babies turns into four babies and we're nine years in then she tells me hey I found my soulmate I thought I was your soulmate we're nine years in here four kids she said no I was just passing time with you I said what and so when she told me that, I thought Dwight was my worst day. Mm. This is now my new worst day in the world. Yeah. And here I am at a crossroad again. I was fixing a door in my house and I had a hammer in my hand. When she told me that, instantly, I said, I'm about to kill her. Mm. I'm going to hit her upside the head with this hammer. Two thoughts came to my mind. If I kill her, I'm going to go to jail. And my four children are going to be raised without their father. 
Thought number two, I don't kill her. And she killed me. And then my children, I still raised without their father. And so you're back to the I same place. And I left. I went to my parents' house and explained to them what happened. In their house that day, I was filled with emotion. And I started sleeping on their basement floor. Hmm. About a week later, my ex-wife, well, she was still my wife at the time. She brings me the children and she says, they're yours. I don't want to have anything to do with them. So now I have four children sleeping on the basement of my parents' home. It's in that moment that college became an option. Hmm. I needed something in my mind that would take my energy, my physicality away from thinking about the worst day of my life, which was my wife Mm -hmm. having an affair and telling me she found her soulmate. And I went to college with this thought. When I left high school, they told me I wasn't smart. So I went back to college with this thought. If I could just take classes and get a C, I'll be doing well. Well, it turns out that when I went back, I was getting A's and B's. I graduated magnum cum laude. And now I was at a community college. I said, well, this is not that bad. Then I went on and got my bachelor's degree Then I went on and got my master's degree. And then I went on and got an ED in education, all because I needed something to divert my attention Hmm. away from the worst day of my life, which was the situation with my wife. So interesting in in this, um, this decision, there's something in you that instead of pouring that, that hole full of something that was going to create more destruction and chaos. You filled it with something good. Um, it strikes me that that, that deep desire for meaning and purpose that we all have that you described Chuck helping with those young guys starts to get filled by something else at this point. And somewhere along the line, when was that moment where you realized like, no, this is, I've got a very different meaning and purpose. I've got, I start to see a clear vision of what that future might look like. Okay, so when I stopped selling drugs in 92, I was the new Chuck. I was like a neighborhood celebrity when I was selling drugs. Everyone knew my name. Everyone knew my brother's name. We, we, we had an organization, an operation. We employed people. We were saviors, for lack of a better word. When I stopped selling drugs with the experience with Dwight, while I was receiving uh, general assistance, public aid from the state, the federal government, however you want to call it, I had an idea that I would go back to schools, elementary schools and high schools in the same neighborhood that I was tearing down with drugs and speak to students. Hmm. And so when I walked into the school, I had instant credibility. Everybody knew who I was. But now I had a different message. And that message is gangs and drugs. 
can do more harm than they ever will do good. And so my, I entitled my speech, and it was called America's Most Wanted is Today's Youth. And I packaged it, and I told my story, and it was a making a difference in, in people's lives. And I wrote a book with the same title, America's Most Wanted is Today's Youth. And while I was working for the city of Chicago, more and more speaking opportunities opened up. So now I'm married to the woman with the four children. I'm speaking. I no longer work for the city of Chicago because now I'm traveling speaking hmm. uh, at colleges and universities about um, America's Most Wanted is Today's Youth. And then I created a sister program for, for professional development for educators entitled Understanding Today's Youth. And things are going really, really well for me. Well, after the divorce and I, a couple years later, I met my soulmate and mm. we've been together now maybe 20, almost 20 years. Mm. But as I was traveling, speaking, she, she didn't have any children. She says, I love you and I'm going to treat the children like they're my own. But you have to come off that road. This is hard. Mm. So I came off the road and she helped me. It was during that process of going from my associate's degree to my master's degree in that process because she had a double master's. She, she's helping me navigate because I'm making money teaching educators and I didn't have a full education myself. Sure. Um, and then I became a teacher. And my experiences from the streets and having children and the space of traveling the globe and the world, taking this message, I become really, really good inside the classroom hmm. because I believed in creating a community. And so I decided that I was going to put community over content because I figured that if I can create a space where my students feel like they belong regardless to what they're experiencing in their home life, they'll perform better in school. I took my experience of growing up in the 70s where people didn't see where education was beneficial in their lives, and I wanted to change that for the students that I was teaching because we were in a low economic environment. We taught in Parkway Gardens, which is a project inside of Chicago. And my students didn't see anyone where education was successful in their lives. So what I did was I started creating opportunities. My students were in eighth grade. I started renting coach buses, hmm. taking them from the south side of Chicago on college tours when they were in eighth grade. It was unheard of. And many of my students left my classroom after eighth grade, went on to high school and went to college. Saw it as a possibility. Experience. Yeah, saw it as a possibility finally. Yes. Curtis, as you, as you were chatting with our students and the work that's evolved over time for you, one of the reasons that, of course, we asked you to come here is around this idea of belonging. And you've talked about it both uh, with Chuck. You've shared this example of students that you taught and the times and places where you felt belonging and didn't. Well, share with us a little bit about what you have communicated to students today in terms of this idea of belonging and how it is 
that we create a space where the broadest swath of students who need opportunity, need access to um, a chance, how we create belonging for those students. So in the work that I do and how it has evolved, let me start there. My work has evolved because I'm a DEI practitioner, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm a practitioner in this space. And so being a practitioner in this space, I know that this is a racially charged, racially motivated space. And I began to do work across the country. And what I noticed is DEI changes from organization to organization, meaning that the DEI challenges on this campus may look different from a DEI challenge on another campus. DEI challenges in this corporation look different from the ones over there. DEI looks different in America than it does in China. Hmm. And so when we talk about this DEI, what can we do to have a common language that will fit everyone? So when I see myself now, the cause that I'm seeing myself fight or champion is I want to be the person when you think about a culture of belonging globally, not nationally, globally, I want to be the name that you think about. And so regular DEI will not create that opportunity for me because DEI changes from place to place. And as I'm looking at this framework for what we call DEI, I'm noticing that there are some gaps in DEI. And so DEI is, the D is diversity. Diversity is um, identifying differences. Well, I call mine differentiation because if you just identify their differences without embracing them, then the differences won't benefit your campus. It won't benefit an organization. And then we talk about the E. I don't talk about the E. I talk about an IEP. uh, giving everyone exactly what they need in order for them to be successful. And then I talk about, instead of the I for inclusion, I talk about the LRE, giving people access to both resources and opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. And so the through line from the new framework on this campus, any other campus, any other state, city, any other country, any other continent, there's one through line in DEI that fits And that is belonging. Hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're black, you want to belong. It doesn't matter if you're a lesbian, you want to belong. It doesn't matter if you're Caucasian, you want to belong. And so the premise is, and what I was telling people on your campus today is, we have to stop this effort and this initiative to try to help people feel like they belong. That's the wrong thing to do. We need to create spaces where people know that they belong because truthfully, there are moments in my family where I don't feel like I belong. (laughs) But when I know my knowledge supersedes my feelings at the time. And so when we move people from feeling like they belong to knowing that they belong, we create the space of harmony. We create a space where People who wouldn't have ever come to school are now wanting to come here. We're creating a space where people don't feel like they have to go to work. We're creating a space where people want to go to work. Why? Because they're able to be 
who they are and bring their true selves to the organization. And we get to champion that and see how their outside life can benefit the inside world of our organization, our Mm. campus and the people around here. How can we benefit from that? And the only way we can benefit from that is if this person feels like they belong. Mm. I was telling the story on my way over here. I worked for 15 years as an educator inside Chicago public school system. I was on the administrative team and everything. They knew that I traveled the country speaking. They knew this. In 15 years, I never went to a PD, a professional development, where I got something out of it. Hmm. And all of them knew that I traveled the country doing professional development, but they never asked me to do one at the school that I worked with at. Had they just let me do one professional development, I might still be there. Hmm. If they had let me do one professional development, the teachers would have gotten something that they hadn't gotten from any other uh, person conducting a professional development. But since I wasn't able to bring my outside self to my inside world of teaching, I left teaching inside the classroom to now teach the nation. Hmm. Well, this this um, idea around belonging, um, it seems to me, is is important in this moment more so maybe than it ever has been as we're trying to figure out how we navigate a future that is plural in nature that uh, you know a a generation of students who are um, increasingly uh, see themselves as coming from very very different and diverse backgrounds Um, the the largest growing demographic in our student population is multiracial and and as you just sort of chase that, that concept, it's like, well, what, what exactly does that idea mean? And so I'm, I'm so grateful that you have been willing to come and tell your story that helps assist in, in helping all of us think through well, what, what does and can belonging look like for us. And, and with that, I wonder if there's any, any parting thoughts or any thoughts that you would want to leave our listeners with uh, today that sort of encapsulates some of your story and your motivations and passions around this topic. There are two things that I would love to leave you with. The first thing that I would love to leave you with is everyone has to know and understand that they contribute to the culture. And when we talk about culture, I'm talking about culture in reference to experience. Mm. Okay. So when people walk onto your campus, don't think of culture as race or don't think of culture as ethnicity. I want you to think of culture as experience. When you go into the local Walmart, you have an experience because there's a culture there. When you go into any store, there's an experience. And so I want everyone to know that they add to the experience, no matter how much or how little they think they add to the experience and the experience cannot be what is capable of being if they don't put themselves inside of that experience. And then two, I had the experience of going to lunch with some of the finest students on your campus. And I met a young lady by the name of Matilda and Matilda says, she asks me, she says, do you suffer from anxiety? I said, yes. She says, how do you overcome that anxiety? I said, I have a cause that's bigger than me. Hmm. And when you have a cause that's bigger than you, you get out of your own way to fight that cause. And then 
she asked, she says, well, how do you, how do you navigate spaces when you're the only person in that space there and you know you won't be received? This is what I want to tell all of your listeners. And I shared it with Matilda. And if she gets mad at me, I'm about to get on a plane. So it doesn't even matter. <laughs> what I want to share with all of your listeners is we will only experience what we think we will experience in a space. Hmm. So if we approach it with, I won't be received, guess what? You won't be received. But if you're the only and you approach it with, I have something of value to add to the experience, to the culture, you'll be received. And if an individual decide that he or she didn't want to receive you, your thought is, it's their loss and not mine. Hmm. And that's what I would want to leave with your listeners. Curtis, you've been uh, so generous with your time and, and spending time with our students, really, I think, kicking off with our student leaders this particular academic year. And I'm just, I, I love this this framing of meaning and purpose that that is foundational here in these conversations and and just grateful that you would come and spend time with us i'm thankful for you all inviting me and i told them while i'm here use me up (laughs) (laughs) it's with the the bill withers sign off here um with that we we just would thank our listeners for uh listening to another edition of cmu now Um, until next time